Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by social activist and author, Jenea Future Khan. You may remember them from their first appearance on this program back in December of 2020. It was last year when Jenea, a trans activist born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, became a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement. As the tragedies continued to unfold, from the murders of Breonna Taylor to George Floyd, Parts of our country participated in what many have called a racial reckoning, a painfully overdue public conversation around how the police actually police and the innumerable racial inequalities built into the very fabric of American democracy. Of course, that conversation was insufficient and also incomplete. And in shaping that public discourse, Jenea created a weekly Sunday sermon on their Instagram. Viewed by millions, the sermons often consisted of them in their home, sitting in front of a camera, just talking about what was happening in this country. As a black, queer, gender nonconforming, and experienced activist, they offered a more studied and nuanced perspective to the unending noise of social media, a way of engaging with the news beyond the headlines. Today, as we mark the one-year anniversary of the 2020 election. We try to do the same. 
a sort of state of the union. We discuss the ongoing infrastructure bill, the rise of big tech, the state of the Democratic Party, the future of Black Lives Matter, the Netflix walkout, Dave Chappelle's special, and what it means to the trans community. So, without further ado, here is Jenea Future Khan. Jenea. Yes. Thank you for being here. Sam, you know I love being here. This is your first time in Highland Park. Second time on the show. I'm one of the special few. One of the special few. (laughs) One year ago, we had an election in this country. And as we're in this anniversary, I'm not sure it's worth celebrating, but it's worth reflecting on. I want to know, how does it land with you right now? I am frustrated. You know, these things happen in waves. And my job is always to look at the entire body of water. And sometimes it gets so frustrating when you can see where we're headed. It's like we're all in a car together, barreling towards a cliff. And instead of getting out of the car, we're arguing over who the driver is. Meanwhile, the thing is hurtling towards the cliff. It doesn't matter who the driver is at that point. There's just a certain point where there is no veering. We're all just headed to the same place. Again and again, I keep reading, you know, we do our research and we read and we, you know, it's liberals are the weak link. Liberals, liberals. They're saying in the 1960s and 70s. There's a way that reducing something into the most simplistic terms when it's like this massive political beast is not the answer. And yet I can't help but be frustrated at the tepidness, this like toothless infrastructure bill. The fact that everything that we moved people for, moved people to do, they did it. Not in the numbers that we would have liked, but we saw two massive belief systems going head to head. 70 plus million people said they wanted Biden. 70 plus million people said they wanted Trump. We needed a majority. We got the majority. And a lot of promises were made because of that. And I'm embarrassed at how little this government is offering people. I'm embarrassed that this is what so many people put their whole heart and soul into. Uh, We're seeing these massive titans that was formerly Silicon Valley, and we're going to see more of that in Texas. But we're seeing the erosion of congressional power in the light of big tech and how these antiquated systems are simply not equipped to deal with these titans, these behemoths, these giants that are doing more to inform everyday people. I should say misinform everyday people here and around the world. And so I'm focused on two major issues right now. That is big tech, and that is climate justice. Those are the two things that are going to be informing what happens next at a scale that I think we're only just beginning to see the realities of. You said you're embarrassed by this administration. Are you surprised? No. I will never take for granted the fact that I asked people to care and that they gave their time and their energy. That time and that energy is a fleeting thing. The world moves, people move, they have all these things that are demanding their attention at any given time. We stop, we pause, we say, hey, we all have to do this thing together, and it's supposed to mean this. By this you mean activism? Change, yes. I mean, we're not even talking about, like, the kind of change we actually want. Paid family leave. Something as simple as that. The only bipartisan issue that's left at this point, and even that, 
can't be agreed upon are pharmaceuticals and drug prices. That's true across the board. 87% across Republicans, 92, I think, percent across Democrats all agree that this is something that matters. And even then, it's one or two people that just stop a bill uh, from happening. And it's embarrassing. And I, and, you know, I know people will say, oh, well, it's nobody's fault and you shouldn't take that on. That's not what I mean. I mean, we are here in this time and we have every possible thing we could ever need to live a good life. And we deny that to people. And we deny a future. And we deny power. And we're offered so little in exchange. And as a human being, as a human, I'm embarrassed by how far we've sunk. And I say that even as I still feel hope, even as I know that my responsibility is to find people again and ask them to join me. I will join people who are doing the fight because part of living a good life is trying. It's trying. And it's such a difficult thing to be living in the time in the last death cries of an antiquated crumbling system. It is a very painful thing to experience. And I think that is something that we can all agree on. We're all living in a kind of pain and numbness. The difficulty of trying You've emphasized that before. I think it's something everyone is feeling right now, at least the people in my life. When you talk with them and ask, what do you care about politically or what do you care about socially? There is this kind of inertia that we're trying to fight back against. Your ability to keep trying, this may be a silly question, but do you think it is replicable amongst people who have not devoted their life to trying? Absolutely. Every day people get up and do the best they can. We all are experts in trying. I think the hard part is the imagination. That's the first thing that's taken away from everyone. We all have this incredible ability to try. And our job, I think, is to bring the movement to people. I think there's an idea that you're supposed to have a movement. People are supposed to, if you build it, they will come. Good movie, but doesn't translate in real life because... <laughs> Field the Dreams is okay. Yeah, no. I can't imagine you like that movie. I grew up in the time of Costner. What can I say? No, me too. I-, I love Kevin Costner. Go on. Our job is really to take the movement to people, and I think we need actionable goals. Let's talk about the actionable goals. What are we thinking about? I mean, look, we have this huge climate conference that's happening. We no longer really have a Green New Deal. Not really. I think that we are long past the point of people looking at their own individual carbon footprint to stop the cataclysmic changes that will happen that will kill crops, cause more uh, drought, entire towns being submerged, hurricanes. And I think that's too big of a thing to just bring to people's door. And I think it's deeper than them using solar panels. Whenever I want to know how a movement needs to shift or what it needs to look to. I actually look to black freedom struggles and I study them because if we're looking at the heart of the matter, sometimes when I'm in rooms with people, what I'm feeling from them, their confusion is if what you say happened to you really happened to you, how is it that you could be here right now? When we think about um, anti-black racism. So there is a way that the black liberation theory and black liberation work is about disbelief. 
It's the suspension of it. And so I go back and I'm like, how do we build power under impossible circumstances? And it really does happen with different narrative strategies. It happens with door knocking, being in space with actual people. And we have been denied that for a while. I think that sort of normalcy that we've experienced with gathering is going to be changed forever uh, because this is the first of many pandemics that we will experience during our lifetime. And I can say that unequivocally as true because that is what science is telling us, that when we were... I don't know, when I was like running around in the 90s or something and scientists were warning about superbugs and everybody laughed in the way that they laughed when the world would end in Y2K, we're here. It looks like critical connections versus critical mass. Critical mass has been the thing, hasn't it? You know, Sam, think, occupy, right? I, I did this list the last time I was here. It's my favorite. Occupy, Black Lives Matter, uh, Standing Rock, the Women's March, No Muslim Ban, Families Belong Together, Parkland, Me Too, Stop Asian Hate. We're just going to see more and more quick mass mobilizations and then gone. If only a few people, a couple of people, stick around a little bit longer, I believe we find each other and you keep it moving. I worry about activism because here's the thing. Everything is changing so quickly. Here's, I'm noticing a trend now where a child is chosen by corporate structures in a way that we've never seen before. I think of um, Sachin Littlefeather came out, got on the camera in place of Marlon Brando at the Academy Awards and said, I spoke on behalf of Marlon Brando and her people, indigenous people, native people said, we don't accept this award. I thought about what would happen if that took place today. And we would see her everywhere. Her entire career would be made. And I don't, I, I think there's power in representation for sure. But I wonder uh, what the, the lines, our lines are being blurred in the way that right now there's a trans movement that's based in Netflix. And again, all power to workers, right? But that's not really the conversation. It's very much based in identity and is housed in a corporation. I'm looking at what the trajectory of these kinds of activations are. And you have to ask yourself certain questions when it comes to representation. Did it change tangibly any of the current things threatening that particular population of people? Did it build power for that particular population of people? Words don't mean what they used to mean now. I mean, we don't agree, for example, on a word that used to be really simple, rich. When we said rich back in the day, we knew what that meant. There were the haves and the have-nots. The wealth disparity has become so great that we don't understand who is considered rich if it's someone who makes a hundred and something thousand dollars a year or if it's a billionaire. What do we mean when we say eat the rich when uh, the 1% can be counted in the very, very extremely low six figures all the way up to billions and billions of dollars? There was a big debate around AOC, whether she was rich or not for making what a you know congressperson makes. And I could not help but wonder again at how reductive uh, that conversation was. And so I, I, I know that part of my work, part of my job, is to bring meaning back into words, coupled with a power analysis that goes deeper than the instant coffee politics that I have seen, which are a byproduct of infinite uh, information and finite attention. The instant coffee politics around Dave Chappelle and his new special. It's something that has been written about, you're smiling suddenly. I am smiling, Sam. Now, to frame it, we're talking after the walkout has happened at Netflix. 
We're talking after Dave Chappelle has given his addendum of a response, which he said he was not going to do. What are we missing in this dialogue? <laughs> you know, I did a Sunday something special, if you will. I worked very hard to zoom 30,000 feet up and talk about what happens when a movement or moment is sparked around an individual. And the language was so blurry that even as organizers, and I would hesitate to call them organizers, but even as people organizing this particular thing said, it's bigger than Chappelle, he was still very much part of the discourse, remove all his images, remove this and that and the other. You make a mountain out of a man, it becomes your hill to climb. A beacon for other people to rally around and your hill to climb. And using Jordan Peterson as an example. Now explain for people why you're bringing Jordan Peterson into this Chappelle conversation. Once upon a time, Jordan Peterson was a professor at U of T that no one had ever heard of. And a bill, I believe it was Bill C-16, to the Canadian Parliament that makes gender discrimination and misogyny, etc., a kind of hate crime. And he goes off and makes a video and he says, I will never say pronouns. That is an impingement on my free speech. I will never respect people's pronouns. And student organizers in Toronto chose to make Peterson the target, which, again, these are very normal responses. Like it's, it's not even like shame on you. These are people who are grappling with how to build power. So they go after Jordan Peterson, who then mulishly digs his heels in, refuses to look at, look at the language of the actual bill, and goes after the students. And what happens is he gets national media attention. And then he gets picked up across the right, and he becomes a free speech hero. And before you know it, Jordan Peterson is one of the most recognizable names around the world. Do we know a single name of the students at all? Where did they go? What happened to them? And does he, has he been changed? Does he say pronouns now? No. Did he get fired? Absolutely not. And it's not to say this is, you know, your bad. It's to say we should be looking at these experiences and learning from them. And I want to be clear that Chappelle and Peterson are not the same person. And I have a much more nuanced take personally than I gave uh, in the sermon because timing matters. And what's that? I wondered if I would get into this with you and to what extent. Let's get into it. To me, and this is me, in all my glory, in all my multiple identities, the thing that offended me the most about that special was that we didn't write those jokes. That's it. Those are our jokes to write. I'm never going to say, you cannot, this is not your experience, you cannot speak on this. I, I want a full range of artistic expression, even when it pisses people off. I mean, look, I'm a non-binary person. I, I end up on the trans max side. I, too, have tried to work out the physics of a urinal. It just is a lot. <laughs> like, it's really a lot. It's angles. It's like where my hips are. It's like, it, you know, it was a pant leg fully removed halfway off my body. Like, like very messy. Uh, would not recommend it for anyone. And I want to be clear about something. I think, again, always looking back at where we were, trans people were in a very specific moment that is frustrating for me because as a black person, I know where we need to get to. So I'll explain. In black liberation movements in the 1960s and 70s, the discourse, you had a radical wing, of course, but the discourse was assimilationist. We are just like you. And right now, today, that is where trans people, the discourse around transness is. We are just like you. 
but we're not. We go through different experiences. I have no idea with this long, with these long braids or not, with when we're, whether I'm wearing color or not, whether I have a mask or not, I have no idea how I'm going to be gendered at a particular time. Because the rules of that change for people, if you look at my size and my very fine bone structure. Spectacular. Right? I would never, in my opinion, I should never be seen as male. I get sirred constantly. I have no idea when that's going to happen. Or is it if I drop my voice a little bit? Is it if I'm frowning? I get sirred and mammed equally. <laughs> it's a moving goalpost. If people are looking for Adam's apples and large hands, I'm not the one. If you are looking around me energetically and chest, I am the one. It's a moving goalpost, right? Uh, because gender is a construct the way that race is a construct. They're fake as hell and have very real life, tangible consequences that we all live within. So the assimilation, assimilationist discourse that we are just the same as you doesn't make sense. As black people inside, same with trans people, we are the same as everybody else. We're all the same on the inside. We all have the same dreams, the same desires, the same hopes, the same longings, the same kinds of pain, uh, although they might be experienced and shaped by those con constructs. I need for us to hurry up and get past the point of we are just like you because we're not. And what a wonderful thing now that we're seeing a sort of renaissance in art, that in black art, that of course is very much connected to the black liberation movement that we've seen in our time in these last few years. And now we're getting stories that are centered in blackness in the way that Toni Morrison intended, right? Which is that there is a universalness in the experience of black people. There's a universalness in the experience of trans people too. Trans women are women, right? Trans people, trans men are men, right? These things are conclusions that I agree with, absolutely. How do we get there? When I say black liberation, there are going to be people who do not agree. So we have to decide what the work is because I can tell you that the work for me is very clear. My job is to look at what those obstacles are and remove them because I have been indoctrinated by the system. I know what it's like to be indoctrinated by a set of beliefs that I had no hand in constructing, constructing we all do. So I have to meet people where they're at. I understand that this is a painful moment. I don't want to come across as crass. I know for anyone, any group of people that have been given so little, to see a space be occupied by someone who does not appear to read or do a lot of research himself. You're talking about Chappelle now. I'm talking about Chappelle, yeah. It's hard. I was having a really good talk with a friend of mine, and we both impressed each other. I impressed her when I historicized it and said, this was, these are assimilationist theories that we actually have to move past. And she impressed me when she said, we also have to make a distinction between transphobia and transmisogyny. If you ask me whether or not the conversation on stage was transphobic, my answer is no. I don't believe what I saw was transphobic. I'll give an example. And I know we're getting into touchy stuff. I'm going to bring up some sexually explicit thing. But if you ask me about rape jokes, unequivocally, I am against them. How can you be against rape jokes but not trans jokes? Rape jokes are 100% about normalizing a specific kind of violence against a specific population of people. Rape jokes are meant to normalize violence against women primarily. It would be very difficult for anyone to point to a specific joke and tell me that it was about normalizing violence 
against trans people. It would be very, very difficult. It is a very difficult thing, a useless endeavor to try to prove somebody is transphobic. It's as useless as me trying to prove that somebody is racist. It makes no sense in terms of building power. And if we're really about building power, then I am like, how do we direct attention to that bill that was referenced in his special? Because here's, here's the truth. There were two things that I really didn't like about it. You know, evoking of turf, although I understand it was like very cheeky. It wasn't, you know, I'm a turf in the way that he referred to himself as transphobic. Also very cheeky, not literal. And so he's engaging in a kind of fiction on stage. And what he's doing and is repeating things that people, the vast majority of America believes. When he talks about J.K. Rowling, I'm not concerned about the, the term turf. I get it. They're annoying. But again, if we're talking about what is about normalizing violence against trans people, TERFs are not murdering trans women. <laughs> They're literally not the ones. Of course, there is a ideological and psychological violence, sure. But that's not what we're talking about here. I don't believe that the that Chappelle has the ability to streamline the mainstreaming of TERFism and J.K. Rowling. The other thing that he said that was really boring was uh, gender as a fact. Gender is a fact. Okay, whatever. Sure. But that's because I understand the majority of people across America believe that. They conflate gender and sex and sexuality. Why? Because education sucks and we're informed by <clears throat> an imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, Christian, heteropatriarchy. So no one's getting the kind of education that they deserve. I'll, I'll end here because I'm sure you have some follow-up questions. But the, the thing is this. What I saw more than anything and what I believe we deserve is a grappling in real time, in real life, with the existence of trans people. And we need to be doing more of that because we don't even understand what the hell is going on half the time. We have no language to explain some of the things that literally shape our lives because so much of this is new. Circling back to that first thing I said, the most offensive thing to me about it was that those are our jokes to write. So how do we make sure that we get up there and we move past this assimilationist theorizing into we are absolutely different and our lives are ridiculous and absurd and deep and meaningful and beautiful and hard like everybody else. Like everybody else. You know, I rewatched a special last night and I also appreciated his attempts at engagement, but... I want to stick with something before we finish talking about Chappelle. In that Sunday sermon you mentioned, you also said, the position of trans women are women needs to be evolved and developed because woman itself in the 21st century is not understood. That is a conclusion. One thing that I know is true is that there are things we trans people simply will not talk about, even amongst each other. And I think that's what happens when you're treated like nothing for so long. So I want to ask you, what are those things not discussed in public? Bodies are very intimate things. Authenticity is very intimate. So I'm going to give you another kind of historicization and why I think this is the right moment. I want to say in the 90s, the feminist movement of the time was no more lipstick, no more bras. It's about embracing who we are as we are you know, embracing your natural state. Can trans people do that? At the same time that that was happening, in queer 
and punk spaces. It was about body modification. That was freedom. Tattoos, piercings, tongue splittings, um, everything that you could think of. People were getting horns in their head, like cool, weird shit. Whatever happens in the margins eventually moves in and becomes the mainstream. You know, I don't even know who's queer anymore. Like, literally. All queer people had was haircuts and feelings. Now everyone's got a lot of feelings and a lot of good haircuts, so I don't know. We don't know. Anyway, so it started on the margins. It came in. Body modification eventually turned into what? Body positivity, which is where we are today. Body positivity is about your authentic self, however that is, whether it's natural or modified. Right, So now we're at the place in time where the icons of the moment all have work done. We all know who their surgeons are. Everybody looks good at a scale that wasn't possible before. Not only not possible before, but uh, still not possible for most people. Accessibility is something else. It, it is not an accessible, attainable thing. But uh, the, the theory of body positivity has expanded because it's coalesced with capitalism and all these other things. So what becomes sort of radical moves into the center, and then it becomes a weird mishmash thing, just like most of us. And people are being more open. We're in the internet age where people are can literally say, uh, you used to look like that, right? At the same time, still mostly on the margins, you have trans folks who are also modifying and have always been modifying to reach our authentic self and that authentic self is actually to try to just kind of look like everybody else in the way that you imagined it and that's not actually an accessible attainable thing for most people and most trans people and when you transition really matters with passability and not all trans people are trying to pass uh, that's not actually a goal for every trans or non-binary person. Um, we're sort of building the plane as we're flying it in terms of discourse. And this is a time, when I say there are things that we wouldn't even talk about, I couldn't just walk up to any trans person and ask who their surgeon was. That's weird and personal. It's making an assumption uh, that I know something about their body that maybe I shouldn't know, even though I might know. We don't have words for cis straight men who have a preference for trans women. We don't have words for uh, me. You know, I'm like, hey, T girls, what's up? I'm this guy. I'm a good top. Hey, what's up? I don't know where they are. When I say there are things that we won't even talk about with each other, part of it is that we just haven't had the chance to have those discussions and to be in spaces together. We've been spread out. We've been living in secret. We haven't been able to access the hormones and gender affirmation surgeries. And I mean, is it the same thing? Like, let's say, okay, I don't even know the full weight between what is, okay, what is a, an adjustment? If I got a chin filler or something on my jawline to look more masculine, is that a cosmetic thing or is it gender affirmation? We need to figure that stuff out. That takes time. And the nuances of that language matter. And there will come a point where it actually doesn't matter that much or we'll find a, another way to, to talk about it. But that's what I mean when I say there are things that we don't even talk about amongst ourselves because we don't know how to yet. But it's something that you can feel or that you feel out when you're in spaces together. And now trans people have become something of a spectacle and a bit of a lightning rod population in the way that blackness is a bit of a lightning rod population. And at different moments in time, we can say that women, native, native folks here have always been a lightning rod issue. 
But trans people particularly because there is a way that there isn't a historical movement that you can point to. Sure, we have Stonewall. That wasn't a trans-specific movement. Trans people have been a part of every single movement that you can think of, have helped to inform and shape it, but haven't really had the opportunity of activating on their own terms. There's been something very underground about us, secret, if you think about it. So we have been underground, and now we're suddenly not. And we're one of the most hot-button issues. And now trans children are a lightning rod issue. Trans women are a lightning rod issue. And there's so much pressure, I think, with every single thing that's done to sort of get it right. So I really want us, if I could be like, ooh, let's skip a step. It's the assimilationist theory. It doesn't work. It is not a useful endeavor, but it might just be a growing pain that we have to go through. And it might just take time. And it's tough. I feel like I can see the end goal um, here. And I worry about, there's a reactiveness that I'm very concerned about, very concerned about because of that lack of historical movement. And I saw it around this thing. And if you ask me if it built trans power and I'm just being objective, my response is no, it did not. It was not attached to a call to action. The calls to action were very specific. They were around Dave Chappelle and they were around Netflix hiring specific people. And that's all right. I want to be really clear about something. That's all right. But my job, I'm talking about my job specifically, is in, to look at and to elevate and move people towards is does it build power? Does it change and advance the discourse in the way that it's needed? And at the moment, I haven't seen that. Now, part of my job also is to not sit there and say, me, 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 and this wasn't. No, it's to take the moment that we've got and move it. And I've been thinking and tr working out how to with timing because saying this now in the wrong moment puts me directly in opposition to so many trans people and they're hurting and I understand and because of my particular lane I feel a lot of responsibility around that the only thing I know for a fact is trans issues are very difficult to get people mobilized around and that attention and that care is very limited for me I feel an incredible sense of responsibility obviously you can hear that I I'm conflicted, which is rare. But a human thing. Yeah. And I think in his own way, Chappelle is clearly conflicted. I suppose we're wondering aloud, are we better off with his kind of engagement? Would we not have it without him? Would we not get to this place of potential power that you're talking about? I don't know. Maybe it would come along anyway. Maybe something else would provoke the conversation. But I think what I'm hearing from you is you... Jenea, the optimist, trying to turn some archaic views on his end into something actionable on our end. Mm -hmm. Is it archaic when everybody believes it? That he is the most, in his own way, much more accessible than I am. And that humanizing that can only happen when you are storytelling, to me, is a good thing. And I know that's hard but me, the person, I believe it is a good thing. I also believe that we would get there no matter what. The more time goes by, the more we infiltrate every kind of thing. You know, it's trans population is not huge. It's not a huge population of people. It's relatively small. Building power takes a lot of time. And what power we're building, we have to fight about. We have to figure that out. 
We've just we've been in everything and we've been everywhere. And I think what we're struggling with now is what do roots look like for us? I think Dave Chappelle is very clear about what he wants to do. And for him, it's true. And I don't think trans people are very clear on what we want to do. I want to be in conversation. I care about discourse. I care about language. I care about history and philosophy. And I care about where we're going. And I know that this moment, we can get there. And I believe firmly in my heart that Dave Chappelle will come with us. I really do. But you're talking about conversation, and yet... You and I both know when this ends, both of us are going to go home and think, I hope this is taken the right way. I felt it in your voice. I felt the trepidation. I felt the nerves about going to a place that that you had not charted publicly. Yeah. You hear it in mind now. How do we hold that? Well, if I needed to be comfortable with everything I did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And I think this is a good container to have that conversation and field because efficacy matters to me more than anything. And if I say all these things and it's not effective in broadening minds and opening hearts because it was, you know, wrong timing. Because I'll, I'll tell you this, I believe firmly 100% in everything that I have said and I've got a sense of humor about it because I am truly so upset because was it one day or many days is clearly my joke to write. The problem is, how do we become prolific enough that one of ours gets to say that too? When you get on stage, you engage in a kind of fiction to make a kind of statement. And it sucks, I know, when you know there's so much attention and it feels so painful when you are not in charge of your own story. We all know what that feels like. But I'm telling you that, you know, as someone who has been engaging in comedy myself, I, I have found language. Black people... Let me tell you about black people for a moment. If we're talking about when I say we need to look at the black freedom struggle as emblematic of freedom struggles all over the world, you will not find a population of people that love to laugh more than black people. There are literal entire histories, bodies of work dedicated to breaking down and understanding, historicizing black humor. It is a tradition. It is part of how we grapple with pain. I know many populations have done it, but there's a specific kind of humor here. And when I think of it from that vantage point, from that perspective, all I see here is a world of possibility. Because if we look at the tradition of rhetorical production, and that's what we're doing when I say we have to make discourse, we have to make language words, it literally is looking at rhetorical production. And there are two kinds of tradition in the Western philosophical tradition. That's like uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. What they do is they talk at people. They, they ask a question and they answer it. And they give people answers. They ask questions, they answer them. That's That is that Western philosophical tradition. That was Trump. He just gave people a bunch of it. These are things that we actually see replicated across institutions. The African-American rhetorical tradition is of call and response. It actually asks a question and requires the audience to engage. And it's back and forth to so what you come out with is something far more nuanced and funny and mighty. And that is the tradition that I am invested in. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care 
were already great, but they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. You've talked about the pernicious power of outrage culture. We're avoiding cancel culture in this conversation in some way, but we're talking about it. What you're pushing for is to have public debate. What you're pushing for is to exchange ideas freely. And I, and I just want to sit with that together. Why is it so hard right now? What are we so afraid of? I couldn't help but notice that around all this stuff, 
with uh, our favorite comedian, you know, around Chappelle, that there was a definitive silence around people who had, particularly trans people, black trans people, that were organizers. I didn't hear a lot from them. I didn't see a lot from them. And a friend of mine, the same friend that I was grappling with these ideas, she was in a room full of black trans people and the conversation came up around Chappelle. And they had a very nuanced take that was kind of like you know aired on the side of free speech and i want to see more that this was something that we could take and make something with including the people who believe it like i learned i mean not necessarily anything new but i it was i was reminded about how prolific some of these ideas are and what happens when you read half an article and think you know something that was the activism that i learned and it was only when i started organizing that i realized that social capital trading words, oppressions. It was nonsense. It was like Pokemon without the fun. I'm like collecting, you know, people's dignity. (laughs) And I was like, this can't be it. This cannot be it. And part of the problem, political education is a very difficult thing because people are galvanized in a moment. There's a, 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 a situation happens. It's awful. Everybody rushes to do something about it. Not everybody's desires are noble. And they don't need to be. All my job is as an organizer to be a container for people's hurt, rage, possibility, hope, and direct it in a way that I hope is useful, the goals that are about building power. So when I see this thing around, you know, one thing I know, I don't, you know, cancel culture is such a useless term at this point. It really always has been. But we don't have a word for how punitive we are across the left to each other, how high the stakes are for saying something, anything. How quick we are to banish, to burn, to sever, to cut off. And uh, the hard part is now on the internet, we have all these activations and nowhere to go. Where are we supposed to go? What movement sticks around? When you learn something that's going on in Tennessee and I'm all the way here on the West Coast, what do I do? I have a bunch of feelings and nowhere to put them. And how do we have mass mobilizations? So the answer is not in mass mobilizations. I, I actually don't think they're useful anymore. I think that 21st century models of organizing need to look at and be uh, fu- to be futurist in nature. And I'm working out what that looks like. And I'm, I know other people are working out what that looks like. And I'm so mad that I don't know how to code. It's upsetting. It's on my list of things to learn after comedy. So you're learning comedy so that you can joke about how bad everything will become? I'm learning comedy because I needed something new to obsess over. I have come to really appreciate because I can be very intense. I can be very serious. You? you? <laughs> yeah. And I feel lighter these days. I've come to appreciate the tradition of laughter as a means of organizing. Um, that actually, it's been one of my rhetorical devices since I started. I make people laugh. I get up on and I say, all right, I know a lot of you have heard things about Black Lives Matter. It's really, you know, really tense stuff. And I just, I want to just answer the question that you're all asking about us? And the answer is yes, we are all this cute. And, you know, oh, you're a person. And it's the same thing when I get on stage for the sake of comedy. Immediately, almost every time, if you are, uh, especially for newer mid-level comedians, but almost every single comedian on the stage, something about their appearance comes up because you are grappling with the projections that people put on your body. So there is an immediate confrontation with uh, self and society. And we're all there for a common goal. And the common goal is laughter. That is a kind of organizing. So it doesn't shock me that satirists 
and comedians have become the go-to voice for people craving political engagement um, that is not the weird kind of ESPN delivery of CNN or, you know, the tilt of MSNBC or the paranoia and chaotic insanity of Fox News. We are looking to comedians as truth tellers. You've got to ask yourself why that is. I have complete faith in laughter as a mechanism of organizing. And because when I actually sat down and thought about every organizing space that I've been in, I certainly have been a, you know, the lead in every single one. So most of the time I'm going to help. But humor was a part of it. Humor has always been a part of it. And, I, and it, somehow I, I never saw that in the fullness of what it was the absurdity, the ridiculousness of being alive. Like, being alive these days is just fucking embarrassing. Like, do you know? Like, I'm just, I'm embarrassed. All the, like, I have no idea how I'm going to feel at any given moment. I'm fine in the morning. I'm weird in the afternoon. I get a huge spike of energy at, you know, 12.30 a.m. It's infuriating. Like, we all just feel ridiculous. We feel like we know more than we ever have, and we feel completely inept. So if I can infiltrate those spaces and plant a couple of seeds there, I know that um, I've done some good work. I mean, I maybe took it too literally when my therapist was like, you need to have more fun. And I was like, well, I had this really great debate. I read this book. She's like, no, 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 fun. And I took it literally. I said, fun. What is fun? Fun is funny. Laughter. And went into, and I started to get books on comedy. <laughs> took it from there. And I was like, what is the tradition of laughter? As, what is it as it relates to like black liberation theory? I want to know. It usually works the opposite way where people do comedy, then they have to go to therapy. <laughs> yeah. You know, race is a very difficult thing for me to joke about. And gender is fucking hilarious. I can immediately get into it. And I was like, this feels nice to, that I can engage in a fiction around my body and name things that are nameless uh, because it's not real. But the perceptions that people have are. And so I step on the stage and I can make jokes about my own body that I could not make in real life. And there's something extremely cathartic about that. Are you trying to get me to ask you to do some of your set? <laughs> no. No. You started thinking about it. <laughs> I did think about it. I want to make one correction. I said people do comedy then they go to therapy. <laughs> I want to make one addition to that, which is that uh, many people do comedy who refuse to go to therapy. So I want to just be clear. You talking about doing stand-up comedy, it's deeply humanizing because most people that know you know you for your activism, your writing, and I think some people are listening right now and they're thinking, wow, after a decade of this fight, they're pivoting to doing stand-up. But it does kind of engender this question in me that I want to put to you. We started with the election, the one-year anniversary. In 2020, there was this expansion of the Black Lives Matter movement. And as we move forward, I want to know... As an activist, what do we learn? You know why I love sports? I love sports, specifically combat sports, boxing. And part of it is that one punch can change everything. The right timing, the right moment, the right belief, the right place. Geography matters so much in fighting. Who's rooting for who? You know, are you the person who gets the edge out of being booed in a crowd or do you falter? You never know. At any given night, anything could happen. And that can be challenging with movements, really big movements. And what the pandemic did was it did, I, I didn't anticipate the circle back. I could not have anticipated it. I had actually moved on from Black Lives Matter. A lot of us had. 
It's that every movement and activation has its time and the job is build power, do as much as you can, and then find specific issue areas to focus on. Some went into focusing on DAs, others went into bail, others went into police and abolition theories. And for me, I was like, okay, there's more work to do. So I need to look at what a national entity looks like that is successful. So I went to Color of Change. Color of Change, you know, a digital uh, body of primarily black folks that are fighting across, you know, whether it's, you know, criminal, criminal justice, Hollywood representation and writing, big tech issues, and they're, success- they're, they're a good organization. They're a successful organization. I wanted to go somewhere, and I wanted to see what that looked like, what that felt like. And I also wanted to get a really, um, like, a, I was like, this country is so weird. And so I needed to go somewhere where I could learn more about it very quickly. So I went there for two years, left my job at the beginning of 2020, January 2020, which is wild. And I was like, okay, I've got this much money. You know, I've got a couple of gigs. So I do these talks. I'll be fine financially. And then let's see what happens. And then the pandemic happened, and I was like, oh. <laughs> like, I, and I didn't anticipate the circle back to this, this sort of movement that was less a movement and more a call to action, like, you know, Black Lives Matter. You know, with Black Lives Matter, it, it has influenced our life everywhere from culture to Congress. It, the, the tangible impact is massive, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm also still digesting and learning because it was also a very painful movement for me um, for personal reasons as well as political. I, I don't think people understand that, that the movement was seven or eight years old by the time people circled around to it. You know, we were pariahs. We were untouchable. And it wasn't that people wanted to be, you know, a face or something like that. But it was very painful, I think, to see the different ways that, you know, to go from Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock and the specific kinds of gross relationship that America has to Native folks is, like, very romanticized, very much like a mythical people. I'm like, while they're still here grappling with the reality of colonialism and trying to save the damn planet— Um, but flocks of people supported Standing Rock. We saw slogans come up that were like, protectors, not protesters. And at the time, protester was synonymous with black activists, as if the work that we were doing was not as sacred. And I want to be clear, it wasn't Native people who were saying that. It was the vast majority of left-wing people, uh, white folks. And there was an embracing of that, the Women's March. There was an embracing of the women behind the Women's March. When Parkland happened, there was an embracing of these kids. And I didn't see black children get treated like that in Black Lives Matter. We had people lose their jobs because of their association with Black Lives Matter, get evicted from their apartments. I mean, just lose the little bit of money that they had. I mean, we were self-funded and self-resourced. People had mental breakdowns. There was a psychological onslaught of not only doing the thing that you're compelled to do because you know in your heart that it has to be done. And the movement was for everyone, and it came at a great cost uh, for the people, I think, who stuck it through. I, I don't know a single black organizer who has been, who was active in that time that isn't deeply scarred, doesn't have very serious trust issues. I've been in spaces with literal infiltrators, not like I think that this person, this person's weird. I said, you, do you guys know this person? No, like verifiable uh, police infiltrators, people who I knew, 
you know, because data came out later on. And these are not things that we sort of talk about now and probably won't for several years. Um, You know, people write about things a decade later. And there are things that we, I mean, do you think that the Black Panthers knew that they were being infiltrated when they were being infiltrated? No, that came out because of whistleblowers. Came out decades later, after the devastation, after midnight murders. And the thing is, we are so much more accessible and reachable now than we ever were that we don't actually need to be murdered anymore. I can't cross the border without a letter from the ACLU. I have a green card. I get tracked and pulled out every single time. Not, I don't go to the normal secondary place that everybody else goes to. I go somewhere else. There were real consequences. And it's, you know, and so as much as I'm like, movements are for everyone, and as much as I want people to call themselves organized and everything else, you need years and peers. A lot, some people have years that don't have peers. Some people have peers that don't have years. And it's hard not to be very protective of something that required so much suffering. I, I, don't, I wouldn't be who I am without the movement. I don't think I am grateful to have been alive in this time. I'm grateful for relationships that had to be forged through fire. And I'm still mourning those that burned. Not in spite, but in the midst of that painful journey you're talking about. You and I sat down at the end of 2020, and towards the end of that conversation, there's a passage I want to play for you right now. We can just sit with it, and then we'll talk about it. Got you. We are fighting against the beast of bigotry that has existed since the founding of this country in so many ways. And there have always been people who are fighting it, always. And we've won. Nothing good has ever been given It's been one. Yes, it took time, but slavery was abolished. I believe that we are saying defund the police. And Sam, maybe we should put this in our calendar 20 years from now. We should meet on this day. And I would love for us to talk about what's changed, because I promise you, police budgets will be slashed. I promise you. I promise you because it's one of, it is an inevitable answer for what communities need right now. I promise you that it will happen because there will always be me to push for it. There will always be people like me. There will always be people like you. And even if it's taken longer than we hoped, we have won. We have won. So we have to keep writing. We have to keep chanting. We have to keep yelling. We have to keep praying. We have to keep declaring. We have to keep demanding. We have to keep fighting. I want this to be a challenge because it means that I get to choose it every day. And I believe that people's lives, the lives of George and Tatiana and Brianna, they deserved it. And I don't want another one to happen. Where did you go? I really listened and I, I could hear where I was at that time. I was like in the middle of a very serious mobilization. Like I sounded like I was on a stage. And I was, like, pretty much every other day. It's, and the pace has slowed down so much for me. I can hear the cadence in my voice is different from what it used to be. I, it's funny because I'm like, I, I believe every word of that. And I'm reflective of the fact that, yeah, police budgets will be slashed. And then we have to ask ourselves, they get slashed because police are no longer as useful. What's going to come in its place? What kinds of technologies will do the work that will be highly, much more efficient? in their predation. We're a ways from that in terms of the, you know, rendering police obsolete. Again, if we're talking about the great battles of beliefs, is it any is it shocking 
that police in shocking numbers are resigning instead of getting vaccinated because that has become a part of the ideological discourse around what you believe. We literally are in the great battle of beliefs and uh, it's becoming more and more, the lines are getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And I think that liberals, which are people who kind of are in the middle, middle of the road folks, cherry pickers, I think that uh, they're going to have to make some choices soon. And I think it's going to be really ugly because that's only what it could be. It already is too ugly. Here's the thing, Sam, you know, the way I do my thing is this, and I'm making a circle here with my hand. I'm at the top of the circle right now. George Jackson said here at the highest point in the circle, that's when all the mass mobilization happens. And I'm tracing a circle. All of this has to happen first. I'm anticipating another Trump run and a wave like we've never seen before. When that time comes, you will find me in that space again. Right now, I'm trying to find a way to consolidate power across the left. And the left and and culture have really come to a head because of social media in a way that uh, can make things really challenging. You know, I can just hear ultra-leftists talking about how useless it is to care about presidential elections. And I'm just like, I, I can't. Like, I literally cannot deal with how reductive things have become online because that is a massive and huge threat. I don't know if Biden's going to make it. In the event that Kamala Harris runs, we've got a, we've got a lot to deal with there. Latent movements, uh, activations, sorry, that people have never heard of that make me sound like I'm wearing a tin hat. It's a pseudo movement run by Russian bots called African Descendants of Slaves that actually is not at all run by black people. I know I sound wild, but this was some of the work that I was doing when I was at Color of Change, studying this. And they go after Kamala Harris and they get activated and it's all about exploiting black people's pain because they say she's not really from here. She's a foreigner. Same way that Trump used to talk about Barack Obama. But now bots, remember I said the digitization of our lives, bots can do that work. Our lives online are about manipulating us, which is why meta Facebook is such a threat. And I say that and actively use Instagram I like the platform. The answer isn't simple boycotts and disengagement, though I disengage heavily regularly. We need a government body that can grapple with the realities of big tech. You know, Native people, I remember everyone was talking about going offline, and there are some Native folks in this room that I was in where we were sort of strategizing, and they said, we're still trying to get online. We talk about uh, the apocalypse and post-apocalyptic realities and... For some people in our country, that's already happened. Time is not a linear thing. It's not a linear thing. There's a collapse of different realities that are happening all the time. I'll to say, I, I'm in a sort of point of incub- place in, of incubation and of education, trying to build up more tools so that when the time comes, when people want, like, need more support, more infrastructure, more of a container, that I, that I can be that for them and that they could be that for me. As we close, the last 15, 20 minutes, you've talked about this seven to eight year run with Black Lives Matter and the human toll that it took on you. And yet, in thinking about the 2022 midterms, um, the 2024 presidential election, it sounds to me like, in spite of that price that you paid, you're not done. Are you going to keep fighting because it's all that you know, or... It's all that you can do. I'm going to keep fighting because of everything that I know. Whatever you believe, 
I think we could agree that there's only this, you know, you only be in this form once. We have this one life, and everything that we've been told about ourselves, about each other, has largely been a lie, at least by the system. And the thing that makes me the most sad, the moments when I feel the most defeated, is the idea that we could live and die knowing nothing else. And for me, if I have a curiosity, even a small one, I follow it. I don't want to leave a single stone unturned. And the only way that I can do that is to go to where stones are. And if you move that stone, there's a person. And I cannot think of a more worthwhile way to live than to continue to be on that journey. Because I'm, I think I said this to you then, and I believe this with everything that I have, that I, I've really struggled with people my whole life. And even going back and writing, and like, you know, there were times I couldn't walk into a room and make eye contact, couldn't speak. I wasn't an advocate for myself, you know. I felt so small, so invisible, so hyper-visible at the same time. I know exactly what that obscurity feels like. And I know that there are parts of me, in me, that can only be accessed through other people. That I can only become who I am or know who I am if I continue to follow those curiosities, if I continue to seek people out. As much as that is a terrifying endeavor, and it is, I mean, I can't tell you how many comedy clubs I've been to now with neckbeard, Metallica-wearing, 1998 Carpenter Jeans dudes that I share to laugh with as I study this science, the science of this thing. And whether or not it becomes a major part of my life or a small one, just the research alone, just being in the space together. I mean, the only time I'm around people like that is if I'm in an airport and everybody's going somewhere else. In that space, just like in boxing, we're all there for the shared goal. We're either there for the fight or we're there for the laughter. And it's not a coincidence that I'm drawn to those two things. There is no end for me in sight. I have to finally just fully admit that that's because, just like in sports, we're human. We are unpredictable. And as long as we're unpredictable, disaster is always possible. But so is every good thing we can imagine. And I know what side I want to live on. Janae Future Con. Thank you very much. Oh, you know, it's my pleasure, Sam. I'm obsessed with you. And that's our show. Before the credits, a little bit of housekeeping. As some of you have noticed, Talk Easy is no longer an independent program. After five plus years, we have joined Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. This is definitely a cause for celebration. Every episode of this show, I think over 250 now, has been an uphill battle. And I am overjoyed to have a partner in Pushkin to climb that hill with each and every week. Thank you for showing up and supporting the work we do here. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. We would not have done this show for as long as we have since 2016 without your love. And I hope you know the love is mutual. I appreciate your time and commitment, and I am forever indebted to you, especially those of you who were here long before anyone had ever heard about Talk Easy. I see you, and I thank you. Here's to five more years, and uh, I do really believe the best is yet to come. As cliche as that is, it's true.
Special thanks this week to Leah Smiley and, of course, Jenea Future Khan. You can learn more about Jenea's work on their website and Instagram. Find those links in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll also find a back catalog of over 240 episodes. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend conversations with activists, writers, and politicians, including Gloria Steinem, Dr. Cornel West, Janelle Monet, Roxanne Gay, Noam Chomsky, Ilhan Omar, Resma Menakem, Beto O'Rourke, and Brittany Packnett Cunningham. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support the show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. I'm a cream personally, but a lot of people like the navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. We also still have a few copies of that vinyl record we made with Fran Lebowitz. That's also on the website at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Of course, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our lead editor is Andre Lynn. Our managing editor is Clarice Guevara. Today's episode was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Ben Tolliday. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Aberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Tim Moore, our engineer out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. The show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with actors Vicky Creeps and Melanie Linsky. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.